Is this um, visual as well as audio or just an audio podcast? Just audio. Okay. What do you mean I won't put my face on for nothing? No, no, no. Well, you look gorgeous. I would do it as a video thing, but here's a bruise, so what can I do? <laughs> well, yeah, and apparently you've got no clothes on, Vader, so, you know, <laughs> what can we do? Yes, but, but at least Vadim has the kind of body that is meant for naked videos, yeah. Yeah, Bruce is smart, I'm beautiful, so we have to... <laughs> Great combination. I've got my face, It's uh, that's why it's audio only. Hello and welcome to the F Word, the magical world of web standards, browsers, and everything in between. I'm Vadim, coming to you from uh, yeah, pretty sunny Berlin right now. Very nice. I'm Bruce Lawson, coming to you from a similarly sunny, but perhaps going to rain, Birmingham in the United Kingdom. And as is customary, we have a very special guest. Special guest, unveil yourself. Hello, I'm Leonie Watson, coming to you from a Bristol that can't make its weather mind up. It's been raining, it's been sunny, and it will probably start snowing in a minute, knowing my luck, but hello. Hi, Waters, thank you. I'm going to call you Waters. Mm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm rude. Because you do. <laughs> because I do, yes. <laughs> So, for the uninitiated, Leonie is, or who are you, Leonie? What do you do? I'm uh, an accessibility specialist, uh, currently one that has teamed up with some good friends from the industry to create a company called Tetralogical. And uh, I spend a lot of my time helping big organizations, curious individuals, and anyone who's willing to uh, get stuck in, find out more about accessibility and how to make things work mostly on the web for people with different kinds of disabilities. What do you do? Well, what does Tetralogical do? I mean, if I wish to hire you guys, what would I be hiring you to do? You're like the A-team, but with screen readers. Oh, yes. We get a theme tune and everything. It's great. Um, no, we do a lot of website application testing for accessibility. So, you know, does this app work? Does it conform to international guidelines? Mm -hmm. But that's actually not the bulk of our work. And it's not the bit that interests us the most either. We do a lot of what we call embedded accessibility or sustainable accessibility, which is essentially just consultancy at heart. But it's nice because we really don't know what we're going to get involved in at the beginning of the project. And that's exactly what it's designed to do. So we go in, we talk to organizations that maybe want to change things top to bottom, the whole sustainable organization for accessibility, or, you know, we work with a team that's in a particular production phase of the life cycle or something like that. And they've got, you know, accessibility challenges coming up and they want some help just to make sure they get it right or figure out how to create, you know, patterns for new content that don't really exist out there yet. So pretty much anything goes in those projects and that's what makes them you know, the most interesting and, and the ones we really set the company up to, to be able to do more of. I actually worked for a company that started to develop its own uh, accessibility standard across the, the whole company for different projects. Uh, currently, we're doing this with uh, internal resources, but I can imagine that at a certain point, we will have to uh, invite some, some company or some agency to help us because uh, we don't have enough experience with that. So I think it would be it would be a good choice. Are you going to negotiate a discount? <laughs> It's great that you're doing that in-house, though. I mean, that, that's an amazing thing for an organization to do. But you're right, sometimes having outside voices can really help. I've, I've long joked that, you know, the, the, the bit we never talk about in accessibility is the diplomatic service. Mm -hmm. And that's the bit when sometimes having somebody else come in and say, hey, look, this is the way forward, can kind of unpick some of the internal politics you often get and just help you sort of smooth the way sometimes. So 
but yeah, good luck. I hope it's going well. So you don't just, you tetralogical bods, don't, you don't just sit there and uh, copy paste from a thing saying this link needs to be underlined, this contrast isn't enough, it's not just boring auditing stuff. No, I mean, as I say, we, we do that. We're an accessibility company and, and mm. you can't be one of those without doing some of that auditing kind of a stuff. But it, as I say, it's not what we intended the company to do for the bulk of its time and, and it's happily four years in turned out to be not what we're doing for the bulk of our time plenty of it but not all of it by any stretch so it's nice you've been going four years crikey four and a half don't forget the half <laughs> so there's money to be made in that there accessibility it certainly seems to be yes <laughs> we're certainly ticking over i mean we're small by design and that was you know one of the things we deliberately set out to be there's a lot of really good very big accessibility companies out there in the world and they're very good particularly at audits you know they've got all sorts of tooling and infrastructure and and you know they can churn these things out lickety split and, and that's that's great but it was never really where we wanted to be in the, the scheme of things so there are nine of us at the moment we might add one or two more in the next year or so but we certainly don't have visions of growing much beyond sort of you know, late teens 20 is a theoretical kind of in our heads maximum of, of how many we'd like to be, but even that seems a little kind of large from where I'm sitting now. And, and the being small is, is nice because we can be nimble. Going back to that idea, if an organisation comes up and says, look, hey, we've seen this on your website and we've seen that on your website and neither of it's quite what we're looking for, but can you? And it turns out quite often, yeah, we can. We created a service to help one, one company who came to us saying, look, we want to build up an accessibility team, but we can't because we don't know what good people look like to hire can you come and help us? <laughs> and it's like, oh, blimey, that's such an obvious problem. Why, why did we never think of that before? But we created a whole sort of, you know, support mechanism for them. And, and since then, it turns out that there's lots of organisations out there going, actually, yeah, we can't hire because we don't know what good accessibility looks like. So can you help us do the hiring and the recruitment and the onboarding? And that's nice. Yeah. For, the, for listeners, by the way, because listeners will, regular listeners will know that we can see each other on video. And just for context, at the, at the moment, Leone is sitting on a massive pile of diamonds and gold. And... Uh, <laughs> I've borrowed your tiara, though, Bruce. Yeah, so, you know, snorting caviar through rolled-up £50 notes <laughs> as we speak. Uh, speaking of money you can make in accessibility, um, the whole accessibility industry or this this part of our industry reminds me early days of the web um, because there aren't many people who know how this thing works. <clears throat> like I remember early days of my career, there were just a few webmasters that knew how this thing actually works and were able to create some some simple static websites that works at the same time in, in IE6 and Netscape, <laughs> Netscape Navigator 4 point something. And uh, these days we have a lot of screen readers that aren't compatible. We have a number of specs that aren't, well, from my opinion, they aren't mature enough to, to cover everything, we're still getting there. So I get this feeling from the accessibility. Am I right? Or I'm just, I don't know what I'm talking about. I think you're right to a certain extent. Certainly the message has changed over the years. You know, from the late nineties, the message was very much that accessibility existed. We needed to tell people that it was a thing. Mm -hmm. And then sort of in the early two thousands, over the, the 10 or more years that followed that, the message sort of became more about why it's important and why you should think about it. And now I think we're in a time where it's much more about the how 
which is just as well because you're right, Betty, stuff's got much more complicated than it was back in the 90s when you could just chuck a bit of HTML and CSS and stick it on a server and, you know, call it done. And I, I think that's a really good signal. Bruce, you particularly will remember this. If you go back a decade, maybe 15 years, the only place you ever really found accessibility talks was in accessibility conferences. And we were all just mm-hmm, mm-hmm. singing to the choir, basically. Now, it's really rare to go to any kind of, of web design, dev, UX conference and not find at least one, if not more, accessibility talks. And what's even better is you find that people just giving talks on completely other subjects will quite often mention accessibility, just in passing, just on the occasional slide. But the fact that it's sort of you know surfacing right the way through the industry is, I think, another another good signal. But yeah, the, the how is, is is still a major headache, partly because you're right, standards aren't always kind of there, partly because I think there's just people are out there jobbing developers, don't always have the luxury of going off and reading blog posts and mm-hmm. doing training and taking tutorials. And the array of, of frameworks and platforms and compilers and transpilers and you know, all this stuff just adds adds complexity. And then you go and throw accessibility on top of that. There's a lot to think about. Having said that, I think the industry is not doing too badly. As a screen reader user myself, um, you know, I still come across websites I fundamentally can't use. But considering the rise in complexity, I'm not seeing a major decrease in, in you know, what I'm able to do. It seems to be, in my experience, at least holding fairly steady through time, which is... Uh, kind of damning it with faint praise i suppose but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but i'll i'll take it <laughs> to be honest with you so so you find that even though the web's becoming more complex because we're doing more things on it that actually finding a completely inaccessible terrible website is is becoming rarer or Yes, I think so. And as was always the way, actually, it's not so much finding a completely inaccessible website. It's more often than not finding one thing on a website that's inaccessible, mm-hmm. but the thing that'll just stop you in your tracks. You know, I, I've come across you know, retail websites where I can go and browse, look at categories, find a product, decide I want the product, stick it in my basket. Oh, wait, no, the add to basket button doesn't work. <laughs> you kind of think. Arguably, that's not very clever from the uh, from the company's side if you can't right. actually add the mm-hmm. product to the basket. You'd think yeah. somebody might have noticed that. They had one job. <laughs> right. <laughs> Get me to buy stuff. That was it. You know, date pickers will be the death of me. I've lost count of the number of airlines, hotels, you know, name your thing, where I've been able to do everything in order to make my reservation except choose the bloody day I want to check in or check out on. You know? uh, yes. So, so websites... <laughs> As, as a whole sort of entity thing, I, I don't remember the last time I, I fundamentally came across one I could not use in any way, shape or form. But yeah, it, it's, it's the, one, the one job problem that, that's actually the real kicker these days. And, and you, you're a screen reader user. You're, you're completely blind, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you don't see, you, you, you have to rely on the screen reader. There's no residual vision left. But you haven't always been blind, have you? No, I lost my sight um, about the turn of the century when I was in my mid-twenties, which was, yeah, a bit of a shock to the system. But You were in your mid-twenties at the turn of the century? I was, yes. Crikey. Almost you, exactly, in fact. Mm. You only look 30 even now. This is, uh, <laughs> see what I did there, folks. I did, yeah. I think you might be the one who needs the screen reader, so. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's lying to a blind guest like a bad sin. Well, only if you get caught, I suppose. Fair <laughs> enough. So you use JAWS, don't you, mostly? I do, yes. And I, I 
I always feel slightly terrible about admitting to that. <laughs> Why? Why is it embarrassing? <laughs> because of all the screen readers now, it's it's the only one with a really stupid price tag attached to it. You know, you've got NVDA, you've got Narrator that comes with Windows, you've got VoiceOver on, on whichever Apple device you happen to want to use. They're all integrated. You know, and, and NVDA particularly, you know, it's an open source project and it's as a screen reader, every bit as capable as JAWS. Uh, the problem is I learned to use JAWS before any of those came along. Mm -hmm. And I quite frankly haven't got the time or inclination to to go and learn all the subtleties and nuances of, of another screen reader. I use all other screen readers pretty regularly, but with JAWS, I, I know how to get myself out of pickles and troubles. And I know all the advanced features and the esoteric bits and bobs that, you know, are sometimes quite useful. I get that. I mean, I suffered enormously when I had to move from Windows to Mac because just everything was different. Now I can't imagine going back mm -hmm. because it's just going to take twice as long to do anything. And with a screen reader, which is basically your, inter you know, it's a thing that enables you for the whole digital world. It's not just web browsers, is it? You, 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 it's your interface to everything on your computer yep. mm -hmm. and you live on your computer because you're a, you know, like us, you're a colossal geek, yep. just a rich one. True that. Well, almost. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, and this is partly why, you know, when, when VoiceOver, the screen reader that, that's on Apple devices, came along on the Mac. And, you know, at the time, there was a huge kind of sweep right across, you know, the industry of everybody was like, wow, Mac's great. None of the kind of, you know, horrible problems that, that Windows had typically had up to that point. And even then, I, I just couldn't couldn't bring myself to put the energy into to learning a new OS. It was thing. Now I actually think I'm quite glad I've stuck with Windows, but that's, a, that's another conversation. <laughs> Another comparison that uh, that I have, I guess I'm I'm in charge of comparisons this uh, this episode. <laughs> I compared the uh, old days of web development with accessibility. Now I'd like to compare browsers on different platforms to screen readers on different platforms. I remember back in 2015 or 16, we used to have Safari on uh, macOS. It wasn't available on Windows or any other mobile devices, and uh, we used to have a problem uh, how to test it. I remember when they ported WebKit on Windows. It was a breakthrough. It improved the quality of websites for Safari uh, drastically because a lot of developers uh, were on Windows and uh, they, they, they just couldn't test it. And uh, these days it's similar from my experience. Like I'm, I'm using a Mac since uh, since 2006 or seven. I'm a full-time uh, macOS user. And for me, JAWS and NVDA are not available. From time to time, I install some virtual machines and I try to uh, do something with uh, screen readers just to test, but it, it doesn't make it easier. I know that a lot of developers rely on voiceover as, as their only screen reader for testing, and uh, they have no idea how different screen readers are, not just uh, how different their interface is. So it's hard for users to switch between them, but how different they, they actually support area attributes or how different they, they announce uh, certain things and uh, how different uh, the experience for, for their users. And um, is it the only way to, to achieve a proper uh, accessibility of, of a certain website to test in all three major screen readers? Or is there, is there a magic trick that would make it easier? Or we will have to have some uh, Windows laptop next to our fancy Mac just to be able to test it? The answer is 
Yes, to all of the above, unfortunately. I mean, as you're going to know, start off with just good quality code. That's a, by far and away the best thing you could do for accessibility, especially screen reader accessibility. Screen readers are absolutely dependent on plain old semantic HTML. You know, divs and spans are our absolute <laughs> worst thing you can do to us because they're meaningless, um, which is why, you know, people like me are always banging on about use your headings, use your button elements, use this. So that's the first thing really that any developer can do before you even think about testing with anything in any browser, any screen reader, just take a good look at your code and see what you can do to improve it. Mm -hmm. um, if you do get to the testing point, I don't think you need to test with all three screen readers. I think you definitely do need to, to test with a screen reader on Windows and voiceover on, on Mac OS, just because as you've noticed, is they're fundamentally so different in the way they behave, the way they work. You kind of do really need to do that. I don't think you need to test with JAWS and NVDA necessarily, um, although they, like all screen readers, do speak things a little differently and, and in some cases do support things a little differently. I don't think that the, the differences between JAWS and NVDA are big enough to really worry about. So, you know, choose JAWS and Chrome, choose Firefox and NVDA, you know, but but choose choose one one of those screen readers and then team it up with with voiceover. Are we basically testing the accessibility tree that the browser on Windows makes? So in other words, JAWS and NVDA will pretty much read the same stuff, but if Firefox's accessibility tree on Windows isn't up to snuff, that's what will be revealed whether or not we're using JAWS or NVDA. Is is that what you're saying? Largely, yes. I mean, the screen readers still do some stuff for themselves. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, it's getting less and less as, as time goes by. But yeah, if you if you test JAWS in, in Chrome and JAWS in Firefox, you know, there will periodically be some differences, but they're not that many of them and, and they're not major. You know, a, a good example is SVG and Firefox. JAWS, SVG and Firefox are not friends in any way, shape or form. They just don't get on, don't play well. But that's a really, really extreme example. You know, for the most part, the, the, the differences on the Windows screen readers and browsers are relatively minimal. I won't say they're non-existent, but they're not too horrendous. But the problem you've got with, with relying on, you know, voiceover and Safari testing that you mentioned, you know, at the start of this question, Vadim, is it's not only that you're just relying on one browser and one screen reader, you're also testing on the one browser and one screen reader that's got of the three, the smallest market share by quite some margin. You know, so if we liken it back to the days when you used to have to test your CSS layouts in every browser because they all just looked a little bit wonky compared to each other, you know, and, and you kind of had to do that to make sure that you, you hit all the browsers and that everything looked proper in each browser. It's, it's kind of a little bit like that. Mm -hmm. Having said that, there is also a sort of truth in don't get too hung up on the fact that screen readers say things differently sometimes, um, because very few of us use screen readers in a comparison sort of environment. If you see, I mean, I use you know voiceover on my iPhone because I, I like those phones and then the accessibility is great and it works really well there. I use JAWS or NVDA on, on my Windows laptop, but the fact that they, they will do the same thing in slightly different phrases, it, it's, it's not a thing to worry about because most screen reader users are not sitting there going, oh, JAWS said graphic and voiceover said image <laughs> you know we kind of get the hang of that it's it's fine but it, it can i've come across you know testing teams dev teams get terribly worried that they all sound identical <laughs> yeah that's okay don't worry too much about that 
Yeah, it's like real human beings don't actually sit and resize their browser windows to check if uh, the design's responsive. It's uh, that's something devs do. Really? I know, but <laughs> I, I, I know it's a hobby of yours over there. The, on the rare rainy days, you have in Berlin, but uh, yeah, real humans don't. So question watchers, everybody says that we don't have to care anymore because AI is coming to screen readers and that will magically sort out everything. You know, it will <laughs> look at our images and describe them. True or absolute bullshit? Absolute bullshit. Right now, anyway. I mean, I've had JAWS and NVDA both have image recognition API capability built into them and have done for years. Mm -hmm. and, and it's excellent if you've got a, an image, particularly one that's got text in. Mm -hmm. Really, really good. Actually, that flips over more into optical character recognition, OCR. But, you know, you can get a very rudimentary understanding of what's in an image, but it in no way, shape or form does a, a well-crafted human text description justice. So it's, it's like lots of things. It's shades of grey, isn't it? If you've got an image and absolutely no way of telling what's in it, sure, I'll take the image recognition because it'll at least point me in the right direction. Given a preference, I will absolutely have a human write the text description that's that's well crafted and thoughtful and relevant to the context the image is being used in as well because obviously image recognition apis have no idea why the image is there they can literally just tell you what it is mm -hmm. and we all know that that you know we use images for different ways in different contexts kind of a thing i wrote about this on my blog a little while ago and you know took a picture i think it one of a Dali's pictures, the um, birth of Narcissus, uh, which is one of my favorite, favorite paintings, you know, uh, image recognition will basically go, yeah, it's a pile of boulders, <laughs> yeah, yeah, of water. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just like, great. If you knew that the picture was likely to be something related to Dali and you happen to know what Dali paintings look like, you might grasp the two pieces of information and put them together in useful ways. But, you know, and then I, I, I quote the, you know, the, the text description is actually on the Wikipedia page and it's just whole magnitude different. But at the same time, if you're looking for a picture of boulders, you can actually use this picture within a different context. You don't have to care that it's a piece of art. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. Yeah. So it, it very much depends on a, on a, on a context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it depends upon the you, doesn't it? I mean, somebody might want elaborate descriptions of images. Or, for example, imagine, imagine I've got a site and uh, for whatever reason, it's really sort of cheerful words, but I've surrounded it with, you know, gloomy emo imagery or something to, to make some kind of weird point. You could argue that although that imagery is decorative and should have no alt text at all, for somebody who's blind they're going to miss out on whatever weird point I'm making because I haven't described that. But other people are like, don't give me lavish descriptions, just tell me the content and everybody's different. Absolutely. I've been banging on about that particular thing for, for more years than I care to admit to. The idea that decorative images are anything that we just put up there to add a bit of atmosphere or whatever to a page should not be described has driven me to distraction for the longest amount of time because I used to be cited. So even if I see some dreadful stock photography of, you know, couple eating pizza on the sofa because it's a mortgage website or something, you know, <laughs> it, it, it evokes exactly the same, you know, reaction in me as someone looking at the image, you know, and I, I suspect that, that as a blind person, I'm actually missing out on, yeah, a lot of, you know, peculiar emo on a cheerful site imagery points to be made and, and other such things. And, and I keep coming back to the thing you just said, Bruce, you know, yeah, not everybody wants to listen to that detail, but you don't have to listen to it. If it's there, you can skip past it or you can stop and listen to it. If somebody decides not to put it there, that choice has gone 
right out of my hand. And it's the same, you know, not everybody reads every word on a web page. I bet you all don't. Nobody starts at the top, reads your way through the header and the navigation <laughs> and the share links and the blah, blah, blah. Of course you don't. You just skim through to the bit you want and then you start, you know, start reading properly. And it's exactly the same with the screen reader. People sort of assume that just because there's content there, we poor souls have got to listen to every last gossip of it. And believe you me, we don't. It's very common though, like when I've been working in a team and sort of helping newbie devs or devs who are new to uh, accessibility and they're, they're keen, they want to learn, but there's sort of this idea that a blind person such as yourself will just sort of press a button and JAWS will just read out everything on the page and at the end of it, you're going to make your decision to go back and buy something or hit next and then you're going to listen to all the navigation again. Um, and there's kind of this idea that it's a very linear experience, but I've seen you using a screen reader and you're hopping around probably more than my eyes actually are on a page. Right. Uh, yeah, but it's the same same idea. You visually scan for something that looks visually prominent, that gives you the visual clue, and then you dive in. I just yeah do the same by navigating by headings, landmarks, whatever HTML elements seem like the most useful strategy on that that particular page. But yeah, you're absolutely right. We, well, I say we, I, I suspect very few of us sit and read a page from top to bottom. Yeah, like it was a, a text file or something like that. We go back to the HTML then, because I, I was going to ask you what, for a blind person, are the equivalent of visual cues? And then you said oh, it's headings and landmarks, etc. HTML5 introduced a whole bunch of elements, nav, main, header, footer, aside and such. And from a screen reader user point of view, these were one of the most amazing strides forward uh, I can remember coming across because up until that point, there was no way to get the same experience that people have visually when you just glance at a page and you see, oh yeah, I've got a header across the top and it's got some nav and some search stuff in it. And then there's, oh yeah, the main content area, I can see that really clearly and yep, footer across the bottom, whatever. And you can just take it all in at a glance. And there was no way really to do that with a screen reader before. And what these elements enabled us to do is navigate between each of those blocks or landmarks on the page. So all screen readers now have a shortcut key. And if you hit it, you'll go to the first of those sort of sections on the page, usually the, the header. If there's a nav inside it and it's using the nav element, you'll go to that next. And each time you'll be told what it is. So you'll hear header, nav, main content. And it's brilliant because usually within you know a matter of five or six keystrokes now, you can hop all the way around the page and just get a holistic sense of the big chunks of content that are on there. So that's one way I navigate quite readily now on, on pages is just, yeah, right, I'll get to the main content area. One of the reasons actually I do like JAWS in particular is it's got one keystroke and it'll take me straight to the start of the main element. So it's basically a built-in skip link, which I would love browsers to do because then we could get rid of bloody skip links on pages. <laughs> Everybody would be happy. Um, if the browsers would do it, you know, keyboard users, sighted or otherwise, could just skip straight to the main content area. It would be happiness. Yeah. Assuming that uh, markup is correct, because I I, I personally put headers, footers, um, navs, sites, and mains in my code, but I don't see it happens a lot. There's a lot of them in WordPress themes, though. I mean... People people hate on WordPress a lot, but given that the most common themes are all maimed and headed and footed up and navved up, and that's 25% or something of the web, isn't it? You've got a lot of bang for the buck there. Mm -hmm. 
absolutely. And if I remember rightly, and Bruce, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that the whole element sort of came around along, well, all of these these elements came along because there was sort of, what was the phrase that was used at the time? Cow paths to be paved. Yes. Um, you know, people were already using, you know, kind of ID equals main or content or nav or navigation or something. And, and so I think, yeah, I, I, I think there's enough there out there in the wild to make things like that worthwhile. Speaking of that and HTML, right now there are like 116 or around that uh, number HTML tags in the, in the HTML living standard. And it's not like they, they say nav is a landmark and screen readers should uh, show it in their menus. No, browsers at some point applied uh, role navigation to nav elements. And these roles are listed in another spec. And uh, the way browsers combine one spec with another one area with HTML is totally up to them. And it's not like we can rely on it. Like not, not all roles available in the area spec are available in HTML. You can't express all of them via just HTML tags. You have to use area attributes, I believe. We got a new uh, search uh, element recently mm -hmm. to be able to express the role search for a certain area where you can search or like filter something. But it looks a bit uh, fragile uh, to me, something that we cannot rely on, really. We can only test uh, how different browsers or screen readers behave and uh, hope for the best. Yeah, that's true. And I think, you know, like any spec, it takes a, it takes time to be implemented. I don't think that's anything particularly peculiar about the way ARIA or HTML, you know, are, are implemented in browsers particularly. I mean, again, going back to the HTML5 days, we saw this a lot with, with HTML5. You know, details and summary took about 10 years, I think, before all the browsers mm -hmm. properly, A, implemented them, B, implemented the, the mechanics and the visual kind of bits and pieces, and C, all the, the accessibility. Yeah, that again, it's an extreme example, but I, I think mostly it's it's about you know, just time time to implement. The other thing about a lot of this is, is that, you know, to take that particular example, if you don't have your search landmark, nothing's going to stop. Nobody is not going to be able to access your content. Uh, a screen reader user will have several different ways to find a search field on a page within a matter of two or three keystrokes, you know, without that. So it's also worth just thinking about the, going back to the, why are you using the ARI in the first place? Is it a blocking feature? If it, it isn't going to work, is it going to stop somebody using the website or is it just going to make it easier for, for those using browsers and screen readers that implement it? And I think that's a really important part of the consideration, along with actually, should you be using ARIA at all? Because from experience, the answer is almost always probably not. I've probably seen more websites brought down by using ARIA than I have made better for it. To be honest, that's probably one of the biggest accessibility problems I come across. People have just like, oh yeah, we'll throw some ARIA at it. It's fine, that'll help. But because they don't understand the relationship between ARIA, HTML, the browser, the accessibility tree, screen readers, and other assistive technologies, um, with the best of intentions, it's far, far too easy to break stuff with ARIA, unfortunately. I've certainly seen some um, dreadful messes made with ARIA. I, I kind of try and always tell people, unless you know what you're doing, don't think about ARIA. I always think ARIA is best used in sort of ready-made components that come with frameworks and somebody knows what they're doing and then developers just take that off the shelf and use it. Yeah, I mean, the problem with a lot of the the interactive roles like you know, menu, toolbar and all the rest of it is not so much that the ARIA has been used, it's that the JavaScript hasn't been used to provide the keyboard functionality behind it. Tab panels are a great example of this. I find lots of beautiful sets of tab panels that tell me their tabs and there's three tabs in the thing and it's 
great until I actually try and use it. And there's no JavaScript to, to give me the keyboard functionality to shift from one to the other. So yeah, y- you've got to use it sparingly and, and thoughtfully. Yeah, a lot, a lot of people don't realize, I think, that if you're a completely blind screen reader user, you're using the keyboard rather than a mouse or anything like that. Somebody with a, a visual impairment might use a screen reader, but they can also use a mouse. But you, for example, you're not going to use a mouse because it relies on hand-to-eye coordination. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, although it is worth kind of drawing a distinction my use of a keyboard is very different to a sighted keyboard users. If you're a sighted keyboard user who doesn't use a mouse for whatever reason, you, you've got a fairly limited set of keyboard commands. You know, you can page up, page down, tab, shift, tab, enter, space, a couple of other things besides. But because you can see what's on screen, you don't need keyboard commands for doing everything else. Whereas as a screen reader user who can't see anything at all, you know, I have commands as we just chatted about for, you know, navigating between headings, lists, landmarks, images, tables, whatever they might be, but also reading. You know, I can say to my screen reader, yep, read this article from the point I'm focused on now all the way down to the bottom or read it by character or by word or by sentence or by paragraph or spell this for me or spell it in the phonetic alphabet because I, yeah, all of these things. So yeah, screen reader keyboard navigation is, is a fairly different beast from the way a sighted keyboard user navigates, which is something that often trips people up. I just um, read a post years ago now about um, how screen reader users um, navigate data tables. And somebody just posted a comment there recently on the video reported going, but, but where are all the focus styles? And it's like there aren't any because I'm not tabbing between the table cells. I'm using my screen reader's navigation to move up and down columns or left and right through rows. But that's not the same thing as a sighted keyboard user would do to you know, navigate, say, links or form fields or something. And yeah, that comes up a lot. Just not understanding the different ways that keyboard users do things depending on with screen reader or without. And as well, it's, um, I know, I imagine that somebody who's comparatively recently lost their sight and is just starting out with a screen reader is going to use it very differently from how you are because it's an incredibly complex bit of kit and it must take ages to learn and become uh, familiar with it, which is why, of course, you don't want to change because now you know JAWS. There's no point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I didn't sit down and document it, but I imagine it, it probably took me two or three years before I really felt I was as capable of using a computer with my screen reader as I was when I lost my sight beforehand. And then this sort of speaks back to the, you know, the developer problem when you're testing and things is we're expecting developers to, to go away and become accomplished at something that's actually quite a complex bit of kit. Mm-hmm. And then make intelligent decisions based on their experiences. And I think this is probably a big problem, you know, why developers do their best, try something with a screen reader. Their experience is remarkably different from mine, but then they're trying their best to to make decisions based on their experiences. And, and that can often lead to unintended consequences too, which is, I don't want to put anybody off trying to test, but I always say, have a go, keep doing it until you feel a bit more confident and you will get there. But try not to make any big monumental decisions based on just your experiences. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I certainly use a screen reader once a week at least. And depending on the project I'm on and the position in the life cycle, I might be using it for many hours each day for an extended period. And I've still right next to me, you can hear it rustling on my, uh, <laughs> on my pin board. I've still got printouts of all the uh, keyboard shortcuts for JAWS, voiceover, etc. right next to me because it's pages mm-hmm. and pages of stuff that I could never yep. commit to memory. Oh, yeah, there are, there are certain ones I can't ever remember. You know, there's a great um, feature in, in JAWS where if you're editing a Word document, you can stick a place marker in at the point you, you want to start editing and then you browse down to the point where you say you want to 
cut out a chunk of it and, and you just yeah move your focus there and there's a, a particular keystroke for doing that and then just literally deleting everything between point a and point b <laughs> i can never remember what it is i look this up about you know once every two weeks or so that i happen to have to use it but back to my yeah the esoteric kind of keyboard commands and yeah we don't want to listeners we're not trying to put you off testing we're <laughs> no, just we're just we're just i mean for me what i do is i always say to people make sure that everything has a text equivalent and make sure that everything is can be reached by keyboard navigation. I don't mean the esoteric keyboard navigation. I mean tab and shift tab to go backwards and, you know, space or enter to activate it. And then kind of your job's done because then then it's up to you, Leone, mm-hmm. how you consume that and what other magical tricks you have to go between those things but if i haven't exposed that stuff you don't have the ability at all right absolutely and the nice thing about testing you know web stuff is that you know in maybe five or six commands screen reader specific navigation commands now you can get a really good sense of of how stuff is built you know the fact that every window screen reader if you hit h will move you to the next heading on the page T for table if you you want to do it you know just getting a handful of those under your belt and testing those and then as you say you know Bruce tabbing through things does link text make sense and can you actually tab onto it because that's good for me as a screen reader user but actually anybody else who isn't using a mouse for whatever reason so yeah much as screen readers are horribly complicated like you know OS can be you can do a remarkable amount of testing in a fairly small number of, of keystrokes and as I've been wont to say in the past you know every little helps none of this stuff has to be perfect because nothing we ever work on on the web will ever be perfect it just doesn't exist excuse me well apart from you bruce no i was talking about vadim vadim's (laughs) known known to be perfect he once almost murdered me in oslo for having two spaces in a markdown file i recall yeah that was close Mm -hmm. (laughs) do you find when you're testing that it's harder to test things that are native apps you know things that are made with whatever you make an android app is or or whatever you make an iphone app is it harder to test um no it's not harder to test if anything it's a little easier which is going actually to the complexity of screen readers screen readers on touch devices are so much easier to use because the whole interface is that much simpler Mm -hmm. everything about it is is much simpler so no the testing is fine the difference really comes for us from the the sort of professional point of view in the depth of information you can provide in the way of help you know if we've got a problem on a website we can dig into the code and get a dev tools out mm-hmm. you know get stuck in and we can be reasonably prescriptive about right go here mm-hmm. lose that attribute do that change the other you can't do that obviously with any compiled code so um, you know with native apps and things when we try sort of offering help to solve things it's it's more about providing the steps to enable the developer to get to the same point you have and then kind of sort of walk that back to what they know about their code base <laughs> sort of thing yeah so that's that's where it gets a little bit trickier but no testing itself is is if anything probably a little easier on on any kind of your yeah, touch device Leonie, you mentioned the uh, summary details 
like this UI pattern uh, added to HTML a while ago. It's been a long uh, road to that point, but we, we finally have it. And I see people use it a lot these days. And I think it's 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 better in terms of accessibility than terrible things that we used to do before that. No array attributes or anything like that, but just toggling uh, classes with JS, something like this. But we don't have a lot of UI patterns like this on the web platforms, that interactive ones. I mean, there is a open UI working on some new primitives on the web platform, but at the moment, like to, to create a tabs panel, you have to write something from scratch. You don't have, uh, you have some uh, area attributes and some prim some primitive in the area spec, but you don't have anything like that in the in the HTML spec itself. And uh, I heard uh, Brian Cardell working on some multiple ideas uh, how to how to bring the native tabs pattern in the web platform, but I haven't seen any implementation so far. And uh, even with the tabs panel, like I we we implemented something like this uh, on the F Word website. We have show notes and transcript. These are two tabs switching between two sections and uh, I just went to the APG uh, area authoring practices guide and uh, just copy pasted the code from there but it's, it's not the only version of the tab panel I've seen a few of them and uh, it's hard for me to tell which one is better because I, I, I open it in screen reader and it works fine and it kind of makes sense mm -hmm. but which one is right which one is the best for screen reader users or we need a spec. We need a. <laughs> you need a. We need an opinion. We need a, a some some yeah. some idea. Which one to choose, and h how do we do that? I mean, there are many many libraries. There are many many patterns or implementations of the same pattern, and uh, it's it's really hard to choose. It is. Uh, so I, Steve Faulkner and myself worked with Brian Cadell on the early prototypes for for the. Uh, native set of tab panels mm -hmm. 10 years ago I think we started on that now and yeah you're right we're not still any further forward I think probably with that particular pattern um, part of the problem open UI has had or, or any attempt to standardize it is that it's got too complicated too quickly there's always that's a point at which the conversation seems to be, well, you know, a set of tab panels is almost the same as an accordion. Mm -hmm. And if we just squint at it sideways in a certain light on a Wednesday, I'm pretty sure we can come up with one set of native elements that we could just tweak so that they can do all things to all the people all the time. And I kind of think that's probably the first problem mm -hmm. that, that's blocked this for so long. If we literally just stuck to a common or garden variety set of tab panels, uh, that might have at least unblocked one part of it. As for your question about, you know, which is the right pan, that's a really good example. Uh, I like the one in the APG, or at least uh, there are two in the APG. Uh, I like the one that automatically displays the tab panel contents when you arrow through the tabs. Mm -hmm. They've got a second pattern where you have to actually hit enter or space or something to select the tab in order for the, the corresponding panel come content to show up. And perhaps because I remember tab panels in the the analog world and that's not really how they work <laughs> you're supposed to just yeah choose your tab and get straight to the content and i also find that extra keystroke just a bit too much effort to be honest yeah i think we implemented the second one so we have to you have to use the uh, your uh, arrows and then press uh, space right mm -hmm. sorry about that <laughs> No, no, but it's fine. But it, again, it sort of comes back to my my earlier point about the search panel. It doesn't matter which of those you choose. They're both going to work. You know, fine, I might grumble about you're making me hit an extra keystroke. The next screen reader user you ask might, oh, I love that because uh -huh. 
I don't change the content until I decide I want to change mm -hmm. it. So I can just, you know, hear all the different tabs by name, and then I can choose the one that I want to select and have it displayed. So th this is the web. Uh, we're humans. There probably aren't right answers and wrong answers, and there almost certainly isn't a single right answer or wrong answer in the scheme of things. So You also need to be a bit careful about extrapolating from the analog world to the digital world. You know, I know of nobody who has wallpaper on their desktop in the real world, <laughs> but everybody does on their computer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and, the, and the other thing, you know, I'd say as well is just because stuff got implemented in a browser and put in a spec doesn't mean to say it's any better than anything else either. You know, mm -hmm. look at the dialogue element. I mean, the, 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 the row about where focus should go when a dialogue element opened went on for, you know, <laughs> best part of a decade, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's just it because humans have got different opinions. Browser implementers have got different opinions and, and, and we've all got different opinions. I think the best we can do is just in spec will come to the, you know, come to the best consensus we can and, and try and play to the majority. While we don't have spec stuff, then just find patterns from good sources. The APG is generally an okay source for stuff. Choosing something from there is almost certainly not going to be too problematic, I would have said. No, speaking of built-in browser primitives, we were discussing earlier, I recently read an article uh, about the forum validation. And uh, it's a common thing. Use built-in uh, HTML stuff, and you'll you'll get good results. But it actually it it consists of two parts. We we'll link it to in our show notes definitely. And uh, the first part teaches you how to use a native HTML validation, and it ends with paragraph like it's all nice and cool, but it's not accessible. <laughs> In many ways, mm -hmm. like the when 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 you try to get proper error message, when you're trying to convey important information to users when they are filling their forms, it's not always accessible. That's why we're gonna turn it off, everything, all the validation, and re-implement it via JavaScript. In this way, it's gonna be much more accessible. It's this way, it's gonna be much more reliable, and we will have more features uh, as as developers to to convey proper uh, proper messages during this form validation. So so do you know any, any other places of the web platform where we have built-in implementation in browsers apart from forms, or maybe you can, you'd can you like to mention some specifics in the web forms where uh, something is an HTML spec when so something is very semantic and sounds very good on paper, but when it comes to implementation, it's just not usable. It's, and it's better to re-implement it via, with divs, area attributes, and JavaScript. Sure. I mean, date pickers come oh, yeah. to mind. I haven't checked in on the... Um you know, the native HTML implementation in a while, but I don't expect anything has improved greatly since the last time I looked. Um, in fact, a lot of the um, the input types that, that came along in HTML5, you know, they, they should have been really, really useful things, but I think they were generally quite poorly implemented across the board, mm -hmm. not just from an accessibility point of view, but for, from all sorts. So I suspect, yeah, if we were look closely at the input types that are somewhat newer than the original ones, um, we'd find some more examples. There's a few other things, you know, placeholder content has terrible color contrast, mm -hmm. you know, so if you're partially sighted or, or need something to be a bit more clear, that's that's a major showstopper. The fact that the placeholder text disappears, you know, is, is problematic, arguably. It's hard to know how you would do a placeholder text without having it disappear, but um, it's something we should start to think about because if you've got cognitive disabilities that mean your short-term memory retention is... Um, is problematic and, and the placeholder is being used as a substitute for a label 
as soon as it vanishes, that's you screwed. <laughs> Good luck with trying to remember what you were there for the form field for. I used to think that I don't have uh, cognitive disabilities, but when I when I see forms uh, coded like this, designed like this, I start thinking that I have because, or maybe it's like, maybe everyone like this. When you when you're filling a huge form and you're trying to check if you're filled it correctly, is if there's no label, how how would you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I had the opposite because I was filling in, it might have been a Mastodon actually, uh, putting in some alt text on an image and uh, I clicked into the into the field and there's still the placeholder text is there. So I tried to select it, but it's unselectable. I don't know how it's put there and it, and it only disappears when you start typing. But I spent a good little while trying to select it to hit the delete button. It Another example of really badly implemented good ideas was the, um, like if you have uh, input type equals email and you type in, you know, Bruce, and because I haven't typed in yet, I haven't finished typing Bruce at brucelawson.co.uk, it's telling me incorrect, this is the bad. And it's like, who who thought to do to start giving error validation before I've even finished bloody typing? And it, it's got to be. I mean, that's a C plus plus wonk who did that. I'm sure because no, no, nobody like in the early days of HTML five forms in Opera, nobody really thought very much about the aesthetics or the uh, actual usability of that stuff. These are uh, usually uh, problematic when you have. I mean, at least in terms of CSS, uh, as far as I understand, uh, user uh, valid. And invalid pseudoclasses, they used to, they they still behave like this. But the, but we have a, a pair pair of new uh, user valid and user invalid, and they wait for you to blur uh, to leave the field yeah. before showing the error. But that's very recent. Those yes, things, are, yes. uh, and and actually, that's what it should have been in the first place. We've had to invent a new name that's less intuitive because the intuitive names have been implemented really badly. But the tr- you can't take them out. You can't delete stuff. It kind of makes sense, like a valid invalid for a machine, and then user invalid and user valid for for a person. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. But even there, you've you've still got an interesting one. So as a screen reader user, I don't know as I move away from a field that it's just gone blurry. Oh, yeah. So you still need to come up with a way either, you know, I have, I'll submit the form and then work out why it didn't submit and, and assume there'll be some kind of error message or, or something, or maybe you use a live region to sort of say, oi, <laughs> problem in the previous field or something. But the difficulty of that is, of course, is that you do a live region that tells my screen reader to pipe up and say there was an error on the previous field. But should that override the reading of the label for the field I've just moved to? Or, you know, what what should the priority of those announcements be and how do you handle that? It takes a bit of thinking about, but yeah, visually, you're absolutely right. That that should have been how it was done originally for sure. I like your ARIA live region goes, oi, it's like ARIA, <laughs> Aria live equals Cockney or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is, yeah, my all my code examples I, I build for myself when I'm testing out stuff, things like this, none for the politeness. <laughs> yeah. You, get back. <laughs> Uh, we mentioned multiple times uh, that uh, 
good semantic HTML is a good starting point, but uh, at some point you have to move further and you have to uh, use some array attributes and ha have to check the APG uh, authoring practices guide or some other uh, sources of information. You can group those together via ARIA, SPEC, uh, WCAG, and some others into like accessibility specs group. And uh, what would you say about the, their state? How good they are right now? And uh, if there's if, if we're missing some some major part of the of, of this uh, accessibility specifications, or you're looking forward to something new that's coming very soon? Um, that's an interesting question. I think the Aria spec is doing really well. I think they got handed a huge task. Uh, right about the time when web components really started emerging. Um, and that was the trigger for the ARIA working group to start creating roles for parity with HTML. And, and to your point earlier, you know, you were saying that a lot of this isn't implemented. You're absolutely right. You know, there are roles for all kinds of text level semantics, B, M, I, whatever. And, and the chances of them ever actually being implemented are, are slim to none. There are some good use cases for, for them, but they're they're not going to rock the world, you know, changes that I think we're going to see anybody putting resources into, into implementing anytime soon. Um, but the ARIA working group has been valiantly kind of working through this and, you know, with some, some good effect, you know, where now screen readers are able to tell Dell and INS, or at least some of them, you know, which is a huge thing that used to really drive me nuts when you go to some website and be like, yeah, this is discounted. And you'd see the, you know, the old price struck through and, and the new price. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, I've got two numbers here and neither of them, <laughs> what am I looking at? You know, so there have been, you know, good things there. So I think, yeah, the fact that the ARIA working group is kind of plowing through this, you know, is, is hard work, but it's ultimately heading in the right direction. Um, and I think they're doing a great job. Here, here. I want a good shout out for the ARIA working group because I, you know, I remember when um, Gmail had just come out and uh, everyone was Ajaxing content in left, right and centre because in those days, the screen reader basically acted, read out the DOM on the page load. And if you change something afterwards, the screen reader user, well, the screen reader didn't know because it was a snapshot of the DOM. And I, I remember actually getting quite depressed thinking, well, that's it. It's game over for accessibility on the web. And then, um, you know, live regions came about and this kind of stuff. And it's not game over. It's uh, it's getting better all the time. Absolutely. And then that was, you know, the real catalyst for screen readers to move away, as you said, from scraping the DOM to actually just querying the accessibility tree in the browser. So now actually probably the overwhelming majority of what a screen reader is able to do is based on what the browser enables it to do, if you see what I mean. So we we, we closed that that sort of dichotomy down almost entirely, um, which has, you know, had a huge, huge benefit, I think. As for the APG, I have to confess, I don't really keep up so much with, with what's going on there. I think there are some really good basic patterns in there. Um, it's always worried me slightly that none of them, uh, or at least... This is why somebody will tell me that they've done this recently. But as far as I'm aware, they still don't really take into consideration touch interface accessibility. Patrick Lauka, who I know will be known to both of you and, and probably many people listening, has been, you know, thumping on about this one for the longest, you know, the longest time. So there's always a sort of slight caution in the back of my mind about those patterns to say they work great on a laptop desktop environment, but uh, I'm much more hesitant to recommend them for something that's going to be used on a, a portable device. Um, but having said that, yeah, there are some some good things in there. And I, I actually like them more for their blueprints rather than the actual code examples. I, I wish the code was a bit more production ready, i.e. easier to steal <laughs> than it is. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that's often the case with, you know, sort of demo pattern book kind of websites and stuff. But I, I like the information that sort of says, look, this is the keyboard functionality you need to 
have if you're going to develop one of these things and these are the roles you should use and the constraints for using them i think that that information is absolutely brilliant golden isn't it i've used that yeah. so many times not for the code just for the this is the expected keyboard interaction and uh, invariably yeah. mm-hmm. there's something that i hadn't thought about or i'd forgotten and i and i'm complete genius but even I sometimes don't understand everything. At some point, they created a, a nicely looking landing with all the information, and uh, that's much easier to read uh, from from mm-hmm. my perspective, at least. It used to look like a typical W3C spec, <laughs> uh, not very beautiful one, and uh, <laughs> it's hard to follow. But these days, it's it's hosted on GitHub. They have a really nicely looking landing, and uh, that's easy to navigate. So I, if you ever checked it out before, like a few years ago, and uh, you were disappointed, I think it, m- it might be a good chance for you to, to check it out again, because it definitely improved. Great. That's good to hear. To the rest of your question, it's the unforgotten specs in that catalog that mm-hmm. I think are worth mentioning. Um, the ARIA in HTML is absolute gold dust as a spec. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Steve Faulkner started it many years ago, recently stepped down as editor. Scott O'Hara is, is now the primary editor of that. And it's basically the rules. If you're going to use ARIA, these are the rules you should follow. <laughs> and if, if more people followed those rules, we would avoid many, many of the disasters that, that we were just chatting about earlier. You know, it basically says, if you have this type of element, you can use these roles. You absolutely must not use these roles. Mm. These are the rules that go into a lot of the validators, you know, Axcore, IBM's Accessibility Checker, TPG's Arc Toolkit. They all use these rules to to help you sort of flag ARIA usage. Um, and so, yeah, th- that's the one I, I find myself referring to most often, along with the Accessibility API mapping specs, the HTML one being the, the most widely used. And this is really useful because it helps narrow down some of the oddities between different browsers and platforms and screen readers. To my earlier example of one says graphic, the other says image. This is where you can find out that, yeah, the accessibility APIs on one platform report this element this way and others on others will, will do it that way. And you can you can get a really good sense of what elements have got accessibility support. And that's pretty invaluable. The one thing I do wish that some time and effort would be put into is the SVG mapping guide and I get SVG is kind of stalled at W3C and, and so it's no surprise really the accessibility around it has too but it's such a shame because there's so much SVG out there and poised on the brink of where ARIA could be really useful with it but a few of the pieces are missing sadly. It does sound though that we've um, uncharacteristically reached a sort of rather optimistic point in our conversation so I might actually go and start cooking my dinner because we're all uh, mm. we're all relatively cheerful which is uh, unusual in the world of accessibility <laughs> <laughs> oh you know me we, I, my bit of the profession we spent far too many years being bloody measurable to people you know all the way through the 2000s we telling people you're doing a general job you can't code you're going to get sued you're all horrible terrible human beings what <laughs> were you thinking and we wondered why nobody wanted to do accessibility <laughs> yes. and i can i can remember just really clearly one day going what the actual there's got to be a better way to do this and and ever since then i've, I've made a, a concerted effort you know what stuff isn't perfect people are trying and and these days you know i think they're trying harder and and more widely than ever. So let's just mm-hmm. keep encouraging rather than telling everybody what a dreadful person you are. So yeah, uh, I, I'm all for accessibility being something we should celebrate, not 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 shy away from. Maybe the very last question that might turn our conversation <laughs> oh, yeah, no. in a different direction, but very last one uh, in short. 
back in 2019, we uh, we talked on the Web Standards podcast um, about accessibility object model. Mm-hmm. And speaking of specs that are moving not so fast, mm-hmm. do you have any news like four years later? I don't, unfortunately. I occasionally see little flurries of, of discussion, but no, I, I will be open and say I'm not following it that closely, um, mm-hmm. precisely because not very much was going on. But no, I'm, I'm not aware that there have been any particular strides forward with it. It's a shame. I think there was huge potential with that. Wasn't it Alice Boxall who was doing it? Sundress from Google, and well, she was at Google, and now she isn't. So I wonder if that's what stalled it. It's certainly, you know, not having her energy and, and input into it was was one of the factors. Absolutely, I think if I remember now, there were one or two technical problems that back then, at least, nobody could think their way out of mm-hmm. um it was p- privacy was part of it and i know i was certainly one of the people raising concerns about how easy it would be to to identify that someone was using a screen reader and mm-hmm. by proxy you'd have a 90 percent chance of knowing they were blind or partially sighted which is then quite personal information but there were some more more low level primitive level security sandboxing kind of problems that came up i forget the details now but I know when I'm sitting in a room full of really quite talented and capable browser engineers and they're all stuck on the same problem. It's a pretty gnarly problem. So there you have it. I managed to, to ruin the perfectly uh, positive <laughs> final of our episode. <laughs> <laughs> well done. <laughs> Good move. <laughs> So, with that, with us all getting cheerful and then Vadim coming in like a big black cloud and raining all over, cheerful me and Leonie were metaphorically licking an ice cream and hugging each other, making daisy chains. We're going to bid farewell to our honoured guest. Thank you ever so much, Waters, for coming in and uh, telling us all about stuff. You're very welcome. It's always a great deal of fun chatting to the pair of you. Nobody ever says that to us normally, do they? Yeah, but the check's in the post, right? <laughs> yeah. So, with that, gentle listeners, we will close close the 19th edition of the F Word. Good Lord. So, it's a goodbye from sunny Birmingham and from me, Bruce. Signing off for, from... Uh, it's still sunny. Sunny Berlin. And uh, see you in the next episode. Cheers. Bye. Thank you.